When it comes to building and financing stronger businesses, Apollo does the heavy lifting by providing customized capital solutions to drive innovation and growth. Apollo, investing in tomorrow, today. Learn more at Apollo.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for a call on healthcare investing. I've got my favorite in-house healthcare pro on the line, Barron's healthcare reporter, Josh Nathan Cases. Josh has been covering this season's torrent of corporate earnings and many other developments affecting healthcare companies. Welcome back to Barron's Live, Josh. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to discussing all this with you. We have a lot to talk about today. So it's a healthcare call. Therefore, I want to begin with a look at the weather. Makes sense? <laughs> I'm, I'm actually talking about a powerful tornado that ripped through a Pfizer manufacturing plant on July 19th. The plant makes sterile injectables, which are used at hospitals primarily. What happened and what are the implications here? So this is a plant in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. There was an unusually strong storm and it uh, it hit this facility, which is one of the largest sterile injectable manufacturing facilities in the U.S. Sterile injectables, it's basically like the medicines you get when you go to the hospital, the stuff that they, you know, hook up to the IV. Um, and uh, this particular plant made about 8% of the sterile injectables used in U.S. hospitals. You know, that, that the problem of shortages of sterile injectables has been a recurring theme in recent years. Um, it's been getting some attention. There was a wave of stories about it a few months ago, and it's been a real headache for hospital pharmacists. And I think that you know, the news of this uh, of this tornado strike um, raised anxieties to a very high level for people who had already been dealing with this problem at a maybe lower level. And you know, the concern being that there would be disruptions in the supply chain. Um, it, what seems to have happened is that the tornado knocked out a warehouse on the property that um, housed both medicines who were ready to go and supplies used in making medicines. It also knocked out the utilities for the plant but it spared the actual manufacturing building. Um, you know, so that's, that's basically, you know, it seems like that's probably good news that the actual manufacturing lines were not destroyed. However, you know, Pfizer CEO Albert Borla on Tuesday, we spoke to him, or I spoke to him because it was their earnings that day. Uh, he said that the fact that there had been no electricity at the plant for a number of days was causing significant problems. Apparently, the manufacturing lines need to be kept at a constant temperature because of the sort of highly, you know, sterile environment that needs to be maintained there. And the company is still figuring out what kind of work they're going to need to do to get those lines ready to go again. The other problem is that APIs, the, the, the ingredients that go into the medicines and other materials used as part of the manufacturing process were destroyed in the warehouse. Borla said that it was he said it was a nine-story warehouse. It was like flattened down by the storm to a two-story warehouse. So everything in there is is, is wrecked. Um, they had to reorder stuff. They've been reordering, but any issues in getting those supplies could also cause delays. Uh, they said, and, and you know, so because there were finished products in the warehouse ready to go out, Borla said there's a possibility of shortages. Now the FDA has been very involved here. They stepped in shortly after the 
the storm to say that they didn't expect an immediate crisis because supplies existed in the distribution system already for a certain period of time. But there are lots of products of which that were made at that plant, of which there's less than a three-month supply available in the distribution system. And uh, there's not a timeline right now to get production going again. So this story seems to touch on two big themes. One is extreme weather. And the other one is um, shortages of medications and medical supplies. There has been a big focus since COVID on reshoring manufacturing in general in this country. Is there much talk of reshoring healthcare manufacturing? That would seem to be a critical area. Yes, there, there's been a lot. You know, I think we'll recall all the conversations about PPE manufacturing and how there was basically zero PPE manufacturing at the height of the pandemic or before the pandemic. This was obviously a domestic plant. Um, uh, and right, uh, but, but if there were a lot more uh, domestic plants, maybe we would be less worried. Potentially, maybe I mean, it's not I, about reshoring, maybe it's just about manufacturing capabilities in general. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, it, you know, th this is a big company, this is a big plant. Actually, Pfizer got this in 2015 as part of uh, a deal to buy a company called Hospira that made hospital medicines, it was their specialty. Now it's a big piece of the Pfizer business. Um, you know, they're, they're only you know, three, four major manufacturers of this stuff that supply the U.S. hospital system. It's not as though anybody can just start up a sterile injectable plant and begin to compete. It's a very highly technical area. Um, so I don't know how reasonable it would be to expect that, you know, a major supplier's plant would be much less than 8% of the market. But but I don't know. I, I think you're right that it it draws attention to these questions of resilience in, in the supply chain and, and having enough stock you know, to, to backstop the usage if there is some sort of unforeseeable disruption. How long does the company think it will be out of commission here? They haven't said. They don't know. Okay. Boy, another thing to worry about, right, Josh? Yeah. <laughs> so let's take a look at Pfizer's earnings since you, you mentioned the company reported this week. They actually reported on Tuesday and they cut full year revenue guidance. So what's behind that and what were some of the other highlights in the earnings report? Yeah, so they talked about these near-term revenue challenges. Um, their revenues missed the estimates, although earnings beat estimates, so they didn't cut their earnings um, uh, guidance. They, they talked about a couple of setbacks. This tornado potentially uh, could have some impact in terms of near-term revenues. They also talked about their new RSV vaccine. Uh, I believe the name is Abrisvo. Uh, Abrisvo. Um, uh, RSV, respiratory syncytial virus. It's a common respiratory ailment. Um, for the first time, we're going to have vaccines for this available this fall for older adults. There's one from Pfizer and one from GSK. The issue is that the CDC's um, recommendation of both of the vaccines was not as wholehearted as was expected. And Pfizer, I think, expects that in the short term, at least this year, sales will be lower than they may have expected. I, I Because of the, 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 the sort of uh, more lukewarm recommendation from the FDA. Uh, I'm sorry, from the CDC, um, which makes recommendations for how approved vaccines are used. Um, I, I did ask them if they thought that would be a long-term issue because they've talked about this medicine, this vaccine rather, as, as being you know, a pretty big product over, over many years. They say that they believe they will be able to improve the CDC recommendation by submitting new data um, next year. So that's their hopeful take. Uh, you know, I think the overall story is that uh, revenue trends and earnings trends are down because of the COVID-19 vaccine and therapeutic sales evaporating. I mean, 
revenue for both their vaccine and their their antiviral Paxlovid in the quarter were $1.6 billion altogether. It was $17 billion in the same quarter last year. And, you know, I think uncertainties around particularly vaccine sales are really making it hard for investors to think about, you know, where revenues of this company should and will be in the coming years. The company said on the earnings call that they think this is affecting the share price. I'm sure they're right. Um, you know, the, the big question here is where vaccine utilization is going to be in the second half of this year when um, the Northern Hemisphere COVID season happens. Um, they did say that if utilization falls short of their expectations, they are going to begin a cost-cutting program. Um, so that's notable. They also say, you know, that the long-term outlook for their non-COVID business remains intact. They're, um, uh, and, and sort of that, that's, that's the story they like to focus on. You know, they have this patent cliff coming at the end of the year. Oh, I'm sorry, at the end of the decade, uh, where a number of important medicines. Yeah, don't rush it there, right? <laughs> <laughs> where a number of important medicines are going to lose patent exclusivity and begin to face competition from either biosimilars or, or generics. And and that's going to be a, a big challenge. And they've been working towards repairing that with a very large number of launches of new products this year and um, some acquisitions. So that's the broader story. But there are some near-term hurdles they have to get over. You know, the, the stock is down about 30% this year. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with um, uncertainty around COVID vaccines. You know, I charted the stock over a longer term period. And it looks to me like the stock is right back where it was in February of 21 before the vaccine launches began. Yeah. I, right I around the time they began. You could debate whether or not that's fair. Um, I think the issue is they, you know, d despite the the incredible success of these vaccines, they they still have the major issue they were facing before the pandemic, which is this looming patent cliff. They say they're going to lose um, $17, 17 billion dollars in annual revenues by the end of the um, uh, expiration of all these patents. Mm -hmm. So that's that's be, a big chunk for them to make up. Might be worth us coming back in another call and looking at some of the things in their pipeline. But yeah, and people can also go back and and read uh, Andrew Barry's feature on them. Uh, just a couple months ago that took right. a really interesting look. Good point. So let's move on to Moderna, which is the other big COVID vaccine maker. Its stock also has round tripped. The company reported this week, the news was mixed. What did Moderna say and what's the outlook here? Yeah, this is actually this morning they, they reported, uh, oh, we're speaking okay. um, uh, on Thursday morning. Um, uh, you know, again, the main story here is the COVID sales. So we're in this weird moment for both of these companies where, Government purchases in the U.S. of COVID vaccines have ended, but the real commercial market hasn't started yet. Um, right now, anybody who's getting a vaccine is working through the previously purchased government stockpiles. And in September, when the updated vaccines roll out, they're going to update them to target a, um, a variant that was chosen by the FDA a couple months ago. Um, that's when the real sales are going to start. The, the news was mixed. So on the one hand, they they... They increased their Moderna's increased their expectations of what COVID vaccine sales will be this year. They say now they expect six to eight billion, which is a pretty broad range. They had pre previously locked in like five or said five billion, but on the other hand, those five billion were supposed to be signed advanced purchase agreements. Now, of those original five billion, one's been deferred. So the they're expecting uh, other commercial sales that they weren't counting before. 
but there is a bit of a pullback. That's complicated, but a bit more graspable is that on the earnings call this morning, they talked about their expectations for how big the COVID vaccine market is going to be in the U.S. this this fall. Mm-hmm. They said their original estimate had been 100 million, but now after looking at the experience in Australia in their COVID season, which is just ending, they're expecting between 50 and 100 million, and that is, uh, first of all, a very broad range, but second of all, at the low end, um, dramatically lower than what they had been uh, talking about just you know a few months ago. What um, is the reason for this? Is it that there's much less uptake of the boosters? Yeah, apparently, I mean, this was just something they talked about on the call. They said that I believe the number was 19% of people in Australia in the recommended age groups for a booster in Australia got the booster this year. And um, that was apparently lower than than they'd expected. And, and so they pulled down their U.S. estimate. But they also said... It's just very hard to make a judgment right now. You know, this is unprecedented. There's never been a shift from a, you know, a government paid for vaccine vaccine to a commercial vaccine. And there's certainly never been an experience like this where we're moving from the pandemic era to this sort of endemic era. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, part of the backdrop is that th- there, there does seem to be a very slight rise in COVID cases happening right now. Um, you know, we're still at extremely low levels relative to other points over the last few years. Um, but I think there's every expectation that there will be cases around next year, uh, this fall rather, and winter. It's just right, a question people of, move indoors. Yeah, it's just a question of, you know, just like any other respiratory virus, it will, it's expected to come back. Um, it's just a question of how many people choose to get vaccinated. And I think no one, no one really knows the answer, as you can see from the stock prices and the right. <laughs> Right. Very, very good wrap up on on very problematic questions here. So let's talk now about CVS. The company reported on Wednesday, the present looks pretty good, but the future suddenly looks a little cloudy. So what's going on and what does it mean for investors? Yeah, you know, I think the the, one of the big debates for people tracking the stock, you know, CVS, think about as the drugstore, but obviously they also own Aetna. They also own a big pharmacy benefit manager. Right. You know, they are mm-hmm. one of the healthcare companies in this country that touches the most Americans. Um, and, uh, excuse me, they, that one of the debates around that stock had, had been whether their EPS target for 2024 was really achievable. They'd laid out some goals. Um, the target was $9 in 24 and $10 in 25. And now on the earnings call yesterday, the CFO said, you know, um, these goals are no longer, um, no longer reasonable. So they're basically um, expecting earnings to be flat between 23 and 24. And then they'll, they will, they, they pulled their 25 guidance and they're going to come back with something new later. Um, now I should say their, their quarterly earnings did beat estimates and they maintain their 23 guidance. Um, but you know, there have been these number of concerns for a while. Their Medicare Advantage plans got downgraded on a quality rating by Medicare last year. That cost them some something like $800 million in expected bonuses in uh, 24. Um, and, uh, and, and so that, that had sort of set off this debate, sparked this debate about whether those, those EPS goals were reasonable. And now, now they're, they're trying to reset expectations. The other important point is that they closed a nearly $11 billion deal to buy a primary care company called Oak Street Health in May. Um, 
And so that's that sort of integration is a big part of the story. You know, I think expectations have been low going into this earnings. Many of the managed care companies have been talking about Medicare Advantage utilization being very high this quarter. It's been an issue across the sector. Um, that was very clearly a big part of the short-term pressures for CVS. They said, um, you know, they they were able to. They they said they're not clear how how long that trend will continue, and I think that was part of why they moderated the expectations for 24 and 25. Uh, they also talked about the potential for a weakening consumer environment. The, the The Wall Street Journal had also reported on Tuesday that they've begun a program of cost reductions, including 5,000 job cuts. They said mostly corporate jobs, not customer-facing jobs. Um, that stock is down 20% this year. It trades at 8.8 times earnings uh, over the next 12 months. Boy, it's starting to trade like a, an auto stock not named Tesla. That's a very cheap valuation. So the question is, um, it's a cheap stock, but is it a bargain? We took a close look at this last fall um, and uh, looked at their um, their plan, their strategy to move into primary care, which is a move that lots of similar healthcare services companies are, are making. Um, I think readers, if they're interested, and maybe maybe should go back and read that. I suppose they made made an acquisition since then in the space that changes the story a bit. But um, you know, their their sort of quest for growth is uh, is, um, uh, is 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 what's facing them. And um, you know, I think it's it's a matter of whether you think the strategy makes sense or not. Do um, is there a predominance of opinions among analysts? Um, I think analysts are pretty mixed. You know, I, I haven't looked at the at how it breaks down recently. Okay. Interesting situation. And, you know, partly emblematic of, of many other healthcare companies in terms mm. of disfavor on Wall Street. Merck reported this week as well. Tell me what you gleaned from Merck's latest earnings and what the outlook appears to be. Yeah, you know, I think that the main story there is that their their biggest products or their most important products, which is the cancer drug Keytruda and the um, HPV vaccine Gardasil, both had higher sales than expected. You know, there'd been a question for the company about their M&A plans. They'd bought a biotech um, called Prometheus Biosciences for $10, $11 billion. That deal closed in June. But, you know, last year there'd been a number of reports that they were pursuing an acquisition of CGEN, a uh, cancer-focused biotech. Um, uh, that deal didn't happen. Pfizer's trying to buy them for now, trying to buy CGEN for $40 billion. And there's been nothing sort of on that scale that's emerged from Merck since then. So I did ask their CFO earlier this week, you know, if they have firepower left, you know, after the Prometheus deal. And she said that they do and they have a strong balance sheet and strong earnings growth. So it sounded like they're still sort of on the hunt. Um, one note, just for people who looked at these earnings, they, they on paper lost $2 per share on a non-gap basis, but it has to do with how they accounted for the Prometheus deal. Um, it was like a $4 per share charge just on this quarter. So without it, um, earnings were up for the same quarter. Uh, I year. want to apologize to listeners for a moment. We seem to be having a fire drill test here in the office. <laughs> the, buzzer has, the buzzer has been going off all day. Oh, no. So we apologize for the background noise. Can't be helped. I don't think it's coming over the, the call too much. I can't hear it. Great. Okay. So pick up with Merck again. I'm yeah. Did the only other point to mention there is that, you know, <laughs> similar to Pfizer, they also had a, or have a COVID-19 viral. This is called Legevrio. It didn't get much uptake in the U.S., although it did in some other countries, but sales were down to it, almost negligible level, uh, $200 million in the quarter, down from $1.2 billion in the same quarter last year. 
Um, but that was offset by the um, the beat from Kitruda and Garso. Mm -hmm. But listening to all of this, I'm not getting a a sense from all these earnings that it's been a, an especially optimistic time for the industry. I think a lot of these companies are dealing with the on, on the pharma side are dealing with the sort of end uh, or the sort of transition to a post COVID environment for their COVID products. Um, and on the healthcare services insurance side, um, I think that high Medicare Advantage utilization, which which is an interesting phenomenon, probably has to do with the pandemic in some sense, you know, people going back for care after de deferring it for a number of years. Um, that's that's having a big impact on a lot of these companies. Okay. Um, speaking of problems, let's get to J&J. &J. The company was recently handed another legal defeat in its ongoing health litigation. So what happens next for the pharma giant? Yeah, so this talc litigation is the overhang that J&J &J just can't get past. You know, um, uh, uh, yeah, I don't mean to make light of it all. It's a serious issue. And uh, for the plaintiffs who claim they were injured, um, very serious. J&J uh, obviously says that um, their, their talc did not cause their injuries. But um, anyway, this has been something that J&J has been dealing with for a long time. Last Friday, a bankruptcy court in New Jersey rejected their second shot at getting these talc cases, dealing with it through the bankruptcy courts. They, they, they've adopted this very controversial legal strategy that is referred to as the Texas two-step. You can read about it at great length. It's very complicated, but basically the idea is to get litigation like this out of civil courts into bankruptcy courts where notionally it would be better for the company. Um, and uh, the fact that the judge has rejected it again calls into question whether the $9 billion settlement with talc plaintiffs that J&J &J announced in April will actually happen. That settlement was tied to the bankruptcy filing. Um, it was certainly, it was far from finalized, but without the bankruptcy, um, the talc settlement, the, the, the prior settlement doesn't mean much. You know, the alternative or the, the most obvious alternative is years of litigation. And that's, not great for J&J. And in mid-July, right. they lost an $18.8 million jury decision in favor of a single plaintiff. And there are tens of thousands of plaintiffs bringing cases against them. So, um, you know, the, the, basically, they, they had created a subsidiary to hold their talc liabilities. They tried to put it in bankruptcy. The first banker, the bankruptcy judge at first said yes, but then the appeals court said no, the filing had not been made in, quote, good faith. So J&J &J tried again. But this time, the bankruptcy judge said no, because the new filing would not satisfy the criteria that the appeals court had set. The underlying debate here, there is an underlying, J&J uh, says there will appeal. There's an underlying question about how much support that $9, million, $9 billion settlement actually had from top plaintiffs. Regardless, it's a huge overhang for the stock. Shares are down about 4% this year. I think that um, they're not down more because of the way that J&J is handling the spinoff of its consumer health company, Kenview, there, which essentially amounts to a buyback for J&J shares. Um, but uh, the stock was down 4% on Monday after this news came through. So this is this is a stock that's trading quite often on legal issues. Uh, I mean, you know, there's a lot going on with J&J. Um, but I think this is a main headache, a major headache for investors who, yeah. um, you know, and a, a big worry that is clearly at, at front of mind. Right. Well, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, and it won't be anytime soon. 
So moving on, Biogen just announced the biggest deal in its history. Tell us what the company is buying and why it's uh, so significant. So yeah, so they're buying, it's kind of interesting. It's a company, it's a biotech called Riata, Riata Pharmaceuticals. It's a $7.3 billion deal. It's basically a deal for one drug. Um, it's a treatment approved earlier this year for an ultra rare genetic neuromuscular disorder called Friedrich's ataxia that um, affects an estimated five that only about 5,000 people in the US have been diagnosed with. Um, that's not the whole number. Presumably more people have it, but it's super right. rare disease, $7 billion. Pretty amazing. Um, th there, there are other programs that Riata has, but the CEO has said on, earning, or on a call announcing the deal that um, those programs are pretty early and they were not ascribed much value in the deal. Um, it's really the first big deal for, or it's the first deal I, at all for the new Biogen CEO, whose name is Chris Becker. Um, it's also notable that Biogen just reshuffled its board. Stat, the healthcare news site, had reported a year or so ago that the board had opposed big deals in the past after they were proposed by management. So interesting that things are actually going through here. Um, you know, Biogen is, they. I'm sure we've talked about this many times, they have um, they have they developed a number of very important muscular cirrhosis medicines, but um, those medicines are declining for them from a commercial perspective. Um, uh, they've had some other commercial challenges, so they're really it, the stock is, is is pretty tied to their Alzheimer's and depression drugs, um, and they're trying to figure out how to expand from there. So this is this is a big um, strategic move in that direction. So you've mentioned a couple of acquisitions today, and I know there have been others in the sector. Can you give us a, a sort of a look at the m at the M&A environment in the healthcare sector? It's been pretty hostile in some other parts of the um, market, but what's going on in the M&A sector? Yeah, I mean, I think like anywhere else, just the, the, the real question mark is, you know, what what's going to happen with FTC challenges to some of these deals? You know, the FTC is challenged. Amgen's acquisition of Horizon. There's questions about whether they will challenge Pfizer's deal to buy Cgen. Um, these are really big mega mega deals. Um, but I think that the, the the question about the FTC's attitude to pharmaceutical mergers is um, having a big impact on the industry at large. Do you see a lot of smaller deals in the wings, or likely? Yeah, yeah there have been you know the these sort of. Not, not, they're not small, but these sort of seven to ten billion dollar deals these do seem to be going through. We just mentioned the CVS deal, the Biogen yeah. deal, Merck deal. There, there's, there's been a number of these, um, but it's, it's the really big ones that seem to be having trouble um, getting close. Definitely attract uh, regulators' attention. So there's other news involving Biogen. It's Biogen and its partner Sage have a drug before the FDA's Zoranolone. It's a depression treatment. Some money managers I've spoken to have high hopes for the product, others not so much. What's at stake here, and when will we learn more? Yeah, so people listening to this as a podcast tomorrow, uh, we may know the answer by then. Uh, the FDA is the set is the, the the due date for an FDA decision is Saturday, so presumably they will announce a decision tomorrow. I think Friday. Um, the the this is a. Um, unusual, a new, new type of depression drug. It's taken for two weeks. Uh, it's meant, and then not after that. Um, it's meant to act very quickly. Current standard of care antidepressants can take about two months to kick in. Um, so the idea is that, you know, this will act quickly. It might be uh, taken uh, to help 
people who are getting on to an anti, anti, uh, another longer-term medicine. Um, they've asked for approval for this both in major depressive disorder and in postpartum depression. Um, and, you know, the trials have shown that it has benefits, but some of them suggest the benefit lessens over the two-week period. Um, sentiment on this is kind of low, uh, in large part because, or at least in some part, because on the company's, on Biogen's earnings call last week, the CEO barely mentioned it. And in previous earning calls, he talked about it a lot. I think investors took that as a sign that maybe they've been getting signals from the FDA that um, they're not going to get good news. There's a possibility that they can get approval in one indication and not the other. I think the ads for approval or the ads for approval in postpartum depression are seen as higher because there is no other pill approved in that indication. Um, so there's probably presumably a better, higher unmet need there. Um, you know, I think the question for this drug is even if it does get approved, will people prescribe it? It will notionally presumably be, you know, more expensive than any of the many generic antidepressants available. Um, and, uh, you know, it's also the sort of standard for two weeks thing is not something that clinicians are familiar with. They might wait for more sort of real world use. So, um, a lot of questions about what the ramp and, and rollout for this drug will be like, even if it does get approved. Uh, analysts right now are modeling a uh, billion dollars a year in Biogen revenues from this drug by 2027. Um, although so it's a little bit complicated in terms of the split with Sage and, and where and how that works. Right. A lot of questions here. I imagine, I imagine if it is approved, the stock will probably pop. Yes. Especially because I think it fell. I think that uh, the, the, there's, there's certainly some degree to which uh, a rejection is priced in at some, at this point, I think. Okay. Josh, we have time for just a couple of questions, but um, that's covered a lot of material today. So I, I feel like you, you've walked us through the whole healthcare sector. Paloma <laughs> um, has asked if there's a medical services index, and I thought it would be a good opportunity to expand the question and talk about some of the exchange traded funds that, that, cover various parts of the healthcare market. So tell us about the big ETFs in the healthcare space. It's one one inexpensive way for investors to bet on the sector. Yeah, if, if she's asking about healthcare services, there's an ETF called iShares US Healthcare Providers, ticker IHF. There's an iShares Medical Devices uh, ETF, IHI. We talk a lot about the SPDR, S&P Biotech ETF. That's uh, the one of the the big most watched biotech ETFs, that's the XBI. And then the one that covers the whole sector, the healthcare select sector, SPDR ETF, that's the XLV. We also watch that one very closely. So I'm just going to reiterate the tickers for those taking notes. The broad healthcare sector spider is the XLV. As you said, the S&P biotech ETF is the XBI and the medical device ETF is the IHI and the U.S. Healthcare providers, that's an iShares ETF, is IHF. And do you have a sense of which is doing the best this year? Um, uh, I think it, it might be the XLV, but none, none of them are doing great, I don't, I don't think. I, I think they're all losing, uh, trailing the S&P. Okay, so that gets to the next question. From Lawrence, do you think the relative underperformance of the healthcare sector will continue? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think... Uh, we can think about the factors that we 
believe explain the underperformance, right? One is um, certainly concern about uh, what the FTC's attitude towards uh, biopharma mergers will mean for the broader, you know, model uh, of, um, you know, in, in medical devices and biotech. Uh, one is concerns about, um, uh, you know, I, I think there's there's a some of these these stocks, particularly the large cap pharma stocks, were very attractive last year. You know, their high dividends in a low interest rate environment gave people a, um, a and the sense that they were, you know, not correlated to some of the areas where uh, some of the sectors that may be hit by a recession. Um, gave they were a good place a, to hide. Yeah, it was a real defensive play. And I think that a lot of the logic behind that defensive play has played out. And now people are looking more closely at some of the challenges, you know, and one of the major challenges, which we've written about a lot recently, is um, concerns over the impact of the Medicare price negotiation program on some of the pharma companies and the biotech companies. You know, I think people ignored that to some degree last year. And now it's really having an effect. Um, so I don't see any of these things going away. Um, and unless something changes on the macro level, that's sort of hard to predict. I'm, I'm not sure what the argument would be for um, some, you know, great overperformance in the second half of the year. And yet people say we're on the cusp of a revolution in medicine. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that, you know, capital was allocated log or appropriately in the past few. You know, I think there's lots of arguments about how uh, strange things that are the, the way in which um, biotech companies were funded, for example, in during the COVID boom, um, uh, you know, setting us up for a period of underperformance as things wash out. I, I, um, you know, even though things as the science is, is very amazing, it doesn't mean that uh, capital allocation was wise or appropriate. And maybe there's some sort of correction happening. And as, as you're basically saying, it's been a growth stock market this year. Well, right. That's, that's the other, right. the other piece you of bring it. Other kinds of stocks. We had a question from decide. Uh, maybe it's David decide. I'm sorry. I didn't quite catch the note. Um, he wanted to get your thoughts on Lilly and Novo Nordisk uh, concerning the side effects that are now coming out about weight loss drugs. Yeah, maybe you're referring to the um, Reuters story a week or so ago where they 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 had uh, data suggesting that people don't stay on the um, these these weight loss drugs, these uh, GLP-1 drugs for obesity for more than a year. And, you know, one read of that was that the side effects are proving to be more than people are willing to bear in the real world. Um, you know, I think it's one of the many pieces of data that's that should be influencing the way that we think about the opportunity for these obesity medicines. There's a lot of questions now about insurance coverage, about pricing. Big question is what's the, um, uh, Novo is running a trial that examines cardiovascular outcomes for people who lose weight using um, their weight loss drug. Uh, and I think that if they can prove that, you know, people had fewer strokes and heart attacks if they lost weight using uh, the, the Novo weight loss drug, um, you know, that that would be a strong argument, both for insurance coverage, potentially Medicare coverage, um, and, uh, and, you know, have tremendous impact on the stock prices and sales of these companies. But um, so that, that data could come any day and, and will be very interesting to see. 
Okay, it's subject we'll be returning to. He also wants to know if you have any thoughts on Bristol Myers and AstraZeneca. Uh, no, it's out of my head. <laughs> All right. Um, I will note that AstraZeneca was a pick of one of our Barron's Roundtable members in our mid-year roundtable, which ran, I think, in the issue of July 14th. So check that one out. Josh, I think we'll call it a day here. Thank you so much. This has been All right, a great thank education you. today. Yeah, All right. Really take back. care. I want to thank our listeners as well for tuning in and for your questions. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, Matt Peterson, Ideas Editor at Barron's, We'll speak with Gregory Brew, oil historian and Eurasia Group analyst, for a timely discussion of energy markets, critical mineral and electric vehicle policies, and Middle East politics. There's a lot thrown into that call. It should be very interesting. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in today. Stay well and have a good day. Apollo is working to ensure a bright, bold future, financing solutions to some of the most complex challenges the world is facing. Apollo, investing in tomorrow, today. Learn more at Apollo.com.